Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught according, accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. It's a delight to see you all this morning. I appreciate so very much Carl's uh, remarks at the Lord's Supper table. And uh, the main takeaway that I got from that is, worthy is the lamb. And the congregation said, so good to see all of you here, especially this good crowd that's uh, assembled here in the auditorium. And knowing that there are others that are joining us online uh, makes me very happy indeed to because I know that you're here because of your spiritual interest and that motivates us to open God's word together and to study this morning. I also want to remind you of the opportunity to worship at five o'clock this afternoon here in this auditorium. And whenever I make that announcement, I also try to make sure that I, I tell you that that is not intended to take the place of the small groups and it, not even to be in competition with those small groups that are meeting in people's homes. But if you're not a part of one of those small groups, we would love to have you here at the building at 5 o'clock when we worship this afternoon. We have been, since we started the, that service back, we have been involved in a series from the book of Philippians called Journey to Joy. And tonight we'll be talking about you can be happy if you, rel- if you rely on grace and not on greatness. And I would love to see you as a part of that assembly. This is Fundamental Sunday. If you picked up an outline, you already know that. So we're going to be dealing with a very rudimentary lesson, but I think one that's greatly needed and very important. Back in 1944, by the way, I realize that whenever we use these kinds of illustrations from history, there are those in the audience that were not alive when these things took place. As I've grown older, my interest in history has gotten greater, and I guess it's because I've seen more of it. Uh, Those things that used to be just in history books, I can remember when some of these things took place. But in 1944, there was a man by the name of Lieutenant Horao Onata. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've only seen it in print. But I'm going to try to pronounce it the same every way, uh, every time I pronounce it, so that if I'm wrong, I'm at least consistently wrong. Onata was sent by the Japanese army to the Philippine island of Lubang. It was his mission while he was stationed on that island to conduct guerrilla warfare and also to uh, do whatever it was that the superiors in the Japanese army commissioned him to do. Uh, Unfortunately, there was a communication breakdown between those who were higher up and Lieutenant Onada because he was never officially told that the war was over. And so for some 30 years, Onada continued to live in the jungle. He was ready when his country would again need his services and whatever information that he could provide. So there he spent three decades eating coconuts and bananas, skillfully evading the search parties that he thought were enemy scouts. 
and he hid in the jungle until he finally emerged from the dark recesses of that island on March the 9th of 1974. You can do the math. So almost 30 years of believing that the war was still being waged, Lieutenant Onada discovered that the war was over and that his side had in fact lost that war. Kind of think of that, when, and that's why I'm relaying the story. When, when I read this passage from Acts, the 18th chapter, about a man by the name of Paulus. Now, his story may not be nearly as sensational nor uh, headline-grabbing as that one of Lieutenant Onada back in, uh, in 74 when it first hit the, uh, the newsstands. But, but still, there are some things that Apollos learned from that experience that I think are worth us spending some time looking at and, and seeing what we can learn from that experience as well. Here, here was a good man. Here was a man who was, the Bible says, eloquent in his speech. He was knowledgeable in scripture. And I haven't even heard him preach yet. And I already like this guy. And yet the, the main emphasis, the, the main takeaway from the passage that Marlon read a moment ago was something that he did wrong. And that was that he was preaching the baptism of John. Look again if, in verse 25. Keep your Bible open, if you will, to Acts 18. We're going to walk through this passage this morning. The Bible says, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Now, if you stopped right there, everything would still be peaches and cream. He was teaching accurately those things that came from the Lord. Though the last phrase says, he knew only the baptism of John. It is critical that we appreciate the fact that this is some 30 years after the ministry of John the Baptist. And yet he's still preaching that you need to be baptized by John's baptism. This is well past Pentecost when the baptism of Jesus Christ into his death in his name should have been the common practice. So Apollos is doing everything right except he's telling people to be baptized for the wrong reason and for the wrong person to please the wrong person. And you know, people today who develop any kind of spiritual interest in scripture are still asking that question, should I be baptized? And if so, what kind of baptism should I submit myself to? After all, Apollos was teaching a baptism, but it was the wrong baptism. It was the right action. He was immersing people in water, but, but it was for the wrong reason. And, and if you skip down just a few verses, look down in, in chapter 19. The same context, and the Bible says, starting with verse 1 of chapter 19 of Acts, and it had happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. So here he is traveling. He's come upon some fellow Christians. Verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul is going to immediately know that something's wrong. There's some gap in their teaching. Look at verse 3. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And so they said, into John's baptism. Again, all this time has elapsed since John's ministry. And here are people who Paul discovers are still being baptized into John's baptism. And so, into what then were you baptized? They said, John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name 
of the Lord Jesus. Here is one of the only, maybe the only place in the New Testament where we find people who were baptized the right way, immersed in water, but for the wrong reason, being rebaptized. And so that was Paul's instruction. You need to be baptized again. And this time it needs to be in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Apollos was doing that. He was teaching the right message. He was teaching baptism in the right measure, the right mode, but for the wrong reason. And people today are still falling prey to this. They're still being baptized, often in the same way as Apollos was teaching. It was the right action, which was immersion, but for the wrong reason. So many people in our world, so many good, good-hearted, right-thinking people in our world have been mistaught that you are baptized, but when you are baptized, you have already been saved. You were saved at the moment that you accepted Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior. You're baptized simply to demonstrate to the world that you're now a disciple. And so the, the same group of people, the same idea, the same mentality that we find in Acts chapter 18 is being replicated in our modern world. People saying, I, I've been baptized and I've been baptized the right way. I was immersed in water. But at the time, I thought that I had already had my sins remitted. What about that? And does this passage really address that, that question, that situation? So the question, why be baptized, still has only one correct answer at least as, as best I can determine from my study of Scripture. We baptize simply because Christ commanded it. Listen to the words of Jesus. And these, of course, come from Matthew's account of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, starting with verse 19. Therefore, he said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, go, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Now remember that Matthew recorded those words as the final instructions of Jesus just before he ascended back into heaven. And this passage has been called the Great Commission because it's the foundation of the church's missionary outreach. It still is some 2,000 years later. We're still preaching and teaching and practicing the Great Commission. Because that's what, that's the marching orders that God gave his church. That's what we're still to be about today as the people of God. But if, but if going into all the world is a part of the Great Commission, and clearly it is in light of Matthew's account, and if making disciples is a part of the Great Commission, and clearly it is because scripture says so, so then is being baptized a vital part of fulfilling the Great Commission. Baptism is part and parcel of Jesus' command to the church. And again, 2,000 years later, it remains fundamental to our mission in this world. Now put simply, baptism is a clear command of Jesus Christ. We obey him when we baptize people into the name of the Godhead. And watch this carefully. There needs to be a warning here. We disobey him when we fail to do that. When for whatever reason, we're not baptizing people into the name of the Godhead for the remission of their sins and we're failing to do what Christ himself has authorized. Now, if the meaning of baptism could be boiled down to one word, I think maybe that word might be identification. Baptism speaks primarily of our identification with Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean by that. And here's how the apostle Paul put the matter 
in Romans chapter 6. Feel free to turn there. We looked at this a month ago on Fundamental Sunday, but it bears revisiting because it's so vitally important to get this straight in our own minds and make sure that we're teaching the world what God would have us to teach them. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about the symbolic nature of our own baptism and how that we're baptized into the death of Christ. And here's what he says in verses 3 and 4. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. I'm, I'm really intrigued by that, aren't you? I would like to be able to live a new life. Anyone who is conscious of their sinful state knows that their sins are still held to their charge ought to sit up and take notice. When he promises us a way to be able to contact the blood of Jesus Christ by being baptized into his death and then be raised to walk in a brand new life. Whether the world knows it or not, that's what everybody in this world so desperately needs. So How important is your baptism? It's your personal identification with the greatest act of human history. And that's the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means that persons who have been scripturally baptized have turned from the old life of sin to live a new life in Christ Jesus. That's why repentance is so vitally important as a part of that process. Because now I'm turning my back on that way of living. I'm sorry that I lived that way. I'm sorry that I gave my, my attention, my, my, my priorities to the world. And now I want to follow Jesus and as best I can to walk in his footsteps for the rest of my days. I want to be raised from that watery grave to walk in a brand new life. But it also means... It also means that we're publicly identifying with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. I know that because the Bible tells me so here in Romans chapter 6. It means that we're openly joining the ranks of those who believe in and who seek to follow Jesus Christ. So it is a point of identification, no doubt about it. Now, do you realize that when you're baptized, you are in fact visually preaching the gospel of Christ? Here's what I mean by that. As you stand as a penitent believer in the watery grave of baptism, as you are anticipate being immersed in that water for the remission of your sins, you are symbolizing Jesus on the cross because it is at that point that you are dying to your sin. Don't miss that. that that's a part of the spiritual formula. And then as you're lowered into the water, you symbolize Jesus' burial in the tomb. And then as you're raised from that water, you symbolize Jesus rising from the dead. Again, that's exactly what Paul said in Romans 6 that we just read. And since you personally are being baptized, you're also saying, I died with Jesus. I was buried with him, and now I'm being raised with Christ to live a brand new life. In reality, in your baptism, you're preaching a sermon without any using any words at all. And the sermon that you preach when you're baptized, particularly if it's in front of an audience of people, is going to be more effective than any sermon that any preacher might be able to preach on Sunday morning because it comes directly from you. You are demonstrating to the world that you too have died to sin. You've been buried like Christ was buried in the tomb and you've been raised to walk in that brand new life. Now, throughout Christian history, three primary modes of baptism 
have been practiced. I know that you know that, but it's imperative that we, we establish that as a point of fact. And that's sprinkling, pouring, and immersion. If you look at most of the religions in, the, in Christendom, you'll see that one of those three, if, if any kind of baptism is required, that one of those three is practiced. Now, some churches insist on immersion only. We're one of them for biblical reasons, while others permit all three. In fact, there are some that I, my understanding was somebody told me not long ago that he visited a denominational church and it had response cards. He was kind of surprised by that. And he was given the option. If he wanted to be baptized by that particular church, you could check which one you wanted. Do you want to be sprinkled? Do you want to be poured? Or do you want to be immersed? And so that was given as an option. I I don't find options anywhere in Romans chapter 6. Or even in our text in Acts the 18th chapter. But as we noted a month ago, the Greek word translated as baptize in our English Bible is the Greek term baptizo. And according to most contemporary lexicons, the primary meaning of that word is to dip, to plunge, or to immerse. Now, I know the secondary meaning is bringing under the influence, but we're mostly concerned with that primary meaning. Dr. Merrill Tenney is a reputed and and well-known scholar, and he notes that, and I'm quoting, after making allowances for certain occasional exceptions, such as passages where washing is implied, the etymological meaning that is, of this Greek word baptizo, indicates that baptism was originally by immersion. That was the way the early church did it. That was the way it took place in the apostolic age. A brief survey of baptism in the New Testament reveals the following interesting facts. Number one, baptism always requires water. That is the element in which a person, as my friend Jerry Barber used to say, that means we're not baptized in buttermilk, or Dr. Pepper, or, or anything else. And you're thinking, well, that's absurd. You're exactly right. And that's the reason he made the point. There's only one element that the Bible authorizes in which a person is to be immersed for the remission of his or her sins. It requires water. Matthew 3.11 teaches that. But baptism not only requires water, it requires plenty of water. John 3.30. Here's where John was baptizing near Enon because there was much water there. And also baptism requires going down into the water. Acts 8.30 is the account of the Ethiopian eunuch. It requires coming up out of the water. Acts 8 verse 39 as well as Matthew 3 verse 16. All of those you will find to be common and consistently found throughout every conversion account in the book of Acts. And also the figures of speech used by the Apostle Paul square up well with the biblical requirement of immersion. Because baptism is referred to in the text that we just read from Romans chapter 6 as a burial. You are buried with Christ in baptism. And in Colossians chapter 2 verse 12, baptism is again referred to as a burial. Again, we talked about that a month ago, so you know what we're talking about. But baptism, again, is into his death. And it involves then being raised to walk in newness of life. I have always tried to make it a practice when I'm privileged to baptize someone and especially if I pick up on the fact that they're intimidated and sometimes just downright afraid of water that in in all of my life in baptizing folks and sometimes on occasion even in, in a pretty swift moving river or a creek I've done that and I try to to reinforce in their minds I tell them just before I immerse them I've never lost anybody. And I want you to know 
that just as surely as it's important that you are immersed in water, that you be brought up. I, I know that, and I want you to know that I know that. I'm going to bring you up immediately. Not only is that important to the future health of that person, but it's important in order to replicate the biblical pattern. You're immersed in water. That's the burial. And then you're raised to walk in newness of life. That is your resurrection to live a brand new life. And that's a wonderful thing. That's the good news of the gospel. It's also, I think, worthy to note that the Greek language has verbs that explicitly mean sprinkle or pour. You will not find those words anywhere used in connection with baptism. So as far as we know, the New Testament water baptism was always by immersion. The Greek word itself indicates that. Church history indicates that. Now let's bring this full circle back to Apollos as we end this lesson this morning. Apollos clearly had a teachable spirit. You know, uh, his Christian brother and sister, Aquila and Priscilla, could easily have approached that the wrong way. They could have come at Apollos heavy-handed. They could have addressed his mistake in front of a crowd. Well, the Bible clearly says that they pulled him aside. I think that implies that they found a private place where they could discuss this with Apollos. Apollos then could have been offended by the fact that they were trying to correct him. I mean, after all, he was the preacher in that scenario. Why wouldn't anyone dare correct his, what he was preaching? He didn't do any of that. He immediately recognized that they were correct. They were right about that. He corrected his message and he went on powerfully and dynamically doing the work of God. Listen to Acts 18, 25 and 26 one more time before we quit. The Bible says, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You know, when you're teachable, let's take this admirable trait of Apollos and apply that to our own lives and our own situation. When you are teachable and you're doing your best to serve God faithfully, as clearly Apollos was doing, God can teach you something else. There is no limit to what God can teach you and and he can expand your knowledge and he can increase what you already possess. If you're teachable, There is no limit to what God can do with you if you're willing to be shown, hey, there's something that I need to do in order to correct what I believe about this or in, in what I'm doing, my actions about a particular situation. But here's the other side of that coin. If, on the other hand, you are not teachable, I hate to be the one to break it to you. You have gone as far as you will ever go. You will never make any more spiritual progress. You will never mature any more spiritually than where you are right now. If you are not teachable. So there's so many qualities about this man named Apollos that we need to really look at closely and then try to not only examine, but then to replicate in our own, uh, in our own lives. There's even a proverb on that, not surprisingly. Proverbs 9 And verse 9 says, give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a man, a just man, and he will add to his learning. We've seen a New Testament example of that very dynamic taking place. And when he wanted to... I'm going to read the last couple of verses of the passage under consideration. The Bible says, and when he went, wanted to go across to Achaia, and the brethren encouraged him... and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. That's, that's Apollos, still under consideration. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those 
who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This passage that, that we've considered today is the first time that we ever hear of this great man, Apollos, the great Bible teacher. But I will assure you, it is not the last time. You will find his name appears in the book of Titus, and then it appears five times just in the book of 1 Corinthians. Once in the first chapter, once in the last chapter, and then three times in between in Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians. Apollos was no flash in the pan. That's what I'm trying to say. Remember, between the books of Acts and and the book of Titus was a span of some 10 years. Consistently, Apollos is doing what we just read about. He's encouraging the brethren. He's continuing to teach the word of God. Now he's teaching baptism, not only the right mode, but also for the right reason. He's doing everything that God would have him to do. And that ought to be our quest as Christians today. I don't want to just be doing something good for God. I want to be doing everything that I can, and so do you. In order to make for an enhancement in the growth and the encouragement of God's people, but also to be able to spread that seed in the hearts and lives of those who don't know very much at all about Jesus Christ or how to be able to become one of his disciples. So when Paul wrote wrote to the, the church at Corinth, this is probably the best known reference to Apollos, Anywhere other than in Acts 18, you may remember in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6 is where Paul says, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God is the one who made it grow. Uh, Brother Apollos just kept on working, kept on watering the seed that Paul was planting, kept on doing what was right. And and I I really feel that it's this very perspective that saves us from the twin follies of presumption presumption and despair. Because if we start saying, "Look look at this great work that I have built for God, remember that you are not the first person on the scene. As vitally important as you are to the ongoing of the work of the University Church of Christ, you're not the one who started this church. You aren't even the one who planted this local congregation. Jesus Christ made it possible by his death on the cross, but someone in our past, in fact, several someones, worked to make this congregation, this good church, a reality. And so we can't sit back on our laurels and say, look what we've done. And if we work for years, and on the other end of the, of the spectrum, we have very little to show for our efforts. Remember that you may be planting some seed right now that someone else will be able to harvest in a future generation. You see, we're all like runners in a relay race. We take that baton of truth, we run as fast as we can, and when the time comes, we pass it on to the next generation. So I I love this imagery because it means two vital things. First, that God's work does not depend on you and me alone, and that's comforting to know. But secondly, God's work will continue long after you and I are gone. We've had a lot of funerals in the last two years. I've referenced that from the pulpit several times, and we've got one more coming up in a couple of days. But if the Lord delays his return, the work of the University Church of Christ will continue because there will be others that will step into our shoes and continue to do God's work in a faithful way. This this morning, what we're inviting you to do is to become a part of something that you can't finish. 
You'll never be able to see the end of it again as long as, as the world continues. So be a part of a work that is, that is much bigger than yourself. In fact, it reaches past time into eternity. And if you make the decision this morning to turn away from sin and repentance, to confess Jesus as God's son, and to allow us to baptize you into Jesus Christ, the only place that you will be able to look back on that and say, I know that I did the right thing is in this life and in the next. You will make a decision that you will never, ever regret. So we bid you come while we stand and while we sing.